Thank you, Seth, Christiana, David, for leading us in worship so far this morning. Uh, And now we continue our worship together by opening up God's Word to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30 this morning. Uh, We have sung God's praises, we have spoken to Him about His glory, about His majesty, and now He speaks to us through His Word, and we wait with anticipation to see what it would say to us today. Uh, Daniel 2, 17 through 30. If you did not get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that has our text, has some space for notes, outline of the the sermon, Alex will get you one of those if you want to slip your hand up, and he will make sure that you get one. It will help you as we go through this morning. Uh, We are in the process of working through the book of Daniel. Here at Trinity, we do a type of teaching called expository teaching, uh, where most often we open up a book of the Bible and we just start working through it paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. We want to understand what God's word is saying in its original context and then apply it to our everyday lives today. So we've been going through the book of Daniel for about a month now. in a series that we call Strangers in a Strange Land. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 17 through 30 is the piece that we will be looking at today, picking up a story uh, in mid-story, picking up right where we left off in, uh, in Pastor Dave's sermon from last week as we look at chapter 2. And it's no accident this morning that Pastor Dave read for our scripture reading Psalm 115 to us. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. That is going to be our theme verse for this text this morning. Not to us, not to me, not to you, not to our church, but to your name, Father, give glory. As we study the life of Daniel and his friends, we're going to see in them a lot to admire, a lot that we want to emulate as Christians. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it said, dare to be a Daniel, or maybe you've even encouraged somebody with that yourself. Daniel's a remarkable individual, a remarkable character, Uh, and, and so are his friends that we're going to be introduced to, and we're going to watch these episodes from their lives play out. There is indeed a lot in their lives that we want to emulate, and that's a good thing. The New Testament tells us that one of the reasons we have these stories given to us in the Old Testament is that they were written down as an example to us, as something that we should follow to know what it looks like to follow God. But if we read these stories about Daniel as being primarily about how great a guy Daniel was, that's going to be a reading of the stories that even Daniel himself would not be happy with. You see, last week, Pastor Dave introduced us to this predicament that, that, uh, that Daniel and his friends are thrust into, an impossible situation, a situation that endangers their lives and from which there is no obvious escape as they are tossed about at the whims of this self-obsessed king who rules over Babylon. And this week, we're going to continue that same story. We're going to examine the middle section of it, which is really where the tide turns, where we see deliverance comes for Daniel, for his three friends. And Daniel is able to stand before the king and do what no one else is able to do. Indeed, to do what everyone else says is impossible to do. However, we're going to notice this morning, the big idea, the big picture, is that Daniel, at every opportunity, focuses and deflects attention away from himself away from his abilities, and on to the glory of the God that he serves. He wants no praise for himself. He wants to funnel it and focus it above. We had Dave read Psalm 115 because really Daniel embodies Psalm 115 in our text this morning. 
in the way that he lives and what he does and what his attitude is, he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And this morning, what I want us to do is look at our text, see how Daniel embodies that attitude of Psalm 115, and then seek to apply that pattern to our own journeys as we live as strangers in this strange land. So Daniel chapter 2, read with me verses 17 through 30, and we will continue in our study this morning. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream, the visions of your head as you lay in bed, are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That's God's word to us this morning. Pray with me as we continue in our study of it. Our God and Father who is mighty and who reveals what is hidden, we ask you this morning that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, what we are not you would make us. By your word, by your spirit, to the praise of your glory and not our own, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, in verse 17... We pick up right where we left off last week. Daniel had just stuck his neck out before the king. So to recap, if you missed last week's message, in chapter 2, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the land where Daniel and his friends are in exile as, uh, as conquered peoples from Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a dream. And this dream troubles him greatly because he has no idea what it means. He, he understands that, that there is something significant about this dream, but he's, he's at wit's end trying to figure out what it is. And so he has his wise men, his enchanters, his magicians come in and please interpret my dream for me. But he's, he's a little bit wary of these guys. We, we get the idea that maybe they have given him some false guidance in the past because he says, 
I want you to interpret my dream for me, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You have to tell me what I dreamed and tell me its interpretation. Then I will know, if you can tell me what I dreamed, that you can tell me what its interpretation is. And so all of his magicians balk at this impossibility. They say, O king, no king has ever asked any wise man or enchanter what you're asking us to do. And, and there's nobody who can actually do this. How can we know what you dreamed? The only people who can do that are the gods. And they don't talk to men. They don't make their dwelling among flesh. What you're asking, king, is impossible. And so in response to this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, all of the wise men throughout the land are to be executed, torn limb from limb. That escalated quickly which I was thinking this week would actually be a really good epitaph for Nebuchadnezzar's tombstone. That escalated quickly. That really sums up what we're going to see in this guy over the course of the next few chapters. And so Daniel catches wind of this brouhaha, and he asks the captain of the guard, what's the big deal? What's, what's going on, Arioch? And Arioch tells him, well, here's what's going on. I've got to go execute all of the wise men of the land of Babylon, of which Daniel is one because of this that went on with the king. And Daniel says, give me, give me some time to come before the king. I'll, I'll interpret the dream for him. Now, at this point when Daniel says this, he doesn't know what the dream is. We're going to see that in our text this morning very clearly. Um, but he has confidence that God will reveal what is hidden to save him, to save his friends, and to accomplish his purposes before the king. So that's where we pick up this morning in verse 17, as Daniel goes back to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companion. So set the scene. Imagine Daniel comes home. Here's Hananiah, Azar, Azar, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. They're kicked back on the couch. Maybe they're playing Risk. Maybe they're watching whatever's popular on Babylonian Netflix at the time. And Daniel comes in and he says, all right, guys, we got, we got something going on. Here's what I've agreed to do. The king has had a dream. we got to interpret it for him. Uh, or if we don't, then all of the wise men, ourselves included, and all of Babylon are going to be executed. Just another day in Babylon. Like This is, this is what we're going to see living in Nebuchadnezzar's land. You never know what you're going to get on a given day. And so these four men have their lives turned upside down, and Daniel presents his case to them, presents what's going on. But I want you to notice the way that they go about this, what Daniel says to them in verses 17 and 18. Daniel's fully aware of the impossibility of the task. Verse 18, he tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. These four guys, they don't start discussing, scheming, debating, asking questions of one another, strategizing with how are we going to go about this. They understand it's an impossibility. This is not something that we can do that they can't. The only hope that we have is to implore God to give mercy to us, in his mercy to extend this knowledge to us. In verse 18, he tells his friends, seek mercy from the God of heaven. This word mercy is the Aramaic word rahamin. It appears only once in the Bible, which is mainly due to the fact that there's not a whole lot of Aramaic in the Bible. Um, but its Hebrew counterpart uh, is appears all throughout the scriptures and speaks of usually God's mercy, his compassion, uh, his deep affection for his people. In fact, if you look at Psalm 51, which is David's great psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and arranging the murder of Uriah, in Psalm 51.1, when David appeals to God to blot out his transgressions, he appeals to this mercy to the rakam of God as the basis 
for approaching God and asking him to blot out his sin. So what we see here, as, as Daniel tells his friends, let us seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He understands that only by God's goodness, his loving compassion on them, will they be able to understand this and be able to be delivered from what they're in. They have no grounds to claim, no rights that they can say, God, you, you must show us this. This is a mercy. This is a grace from God. They are entreating God on the basis of his good, loving, merciful character to give them to reveal to them this mystery. So let's, let's set the, the table. Daniel's plan is to appeal to God's grace in order to grant them the deliverance that they need. That's a pretty stinking good plan. And it's going to work out rather well as, as we're about to see. It's a plan that we probably should emulate more often than we do. That when we look to God, when we look at who he is, what he's revealed to us about himself, our hope is in his character. Our hope is in his goodness. Our hope is in his grace, not in our abilities, not in our rights, not in our spiritual performance, but in who he is. And so as we look at this, when facing crisis or fear or anxiety, how quickly does this kind of prayer in treating God on the basis of who he is, how often does it pop up on the to-do list that you scribble together in those kind of times? I mean, I confess to my shame, it's much, much lower on the list than it should be. When I face anxiety, when a situation explodes before me, maybe I'm not in danger of having my head lopped off like these guys, but, but some low-level crisis comes into my life, I, I don't run to, to this kind of prayer, to this kind of seeking mercy from God as quickly as I should. And maybe that's you. Maybe you don't either. That reality says a couple of things. It speaks to a couple things about us. One, an overinflated view of my own abilities, of my own strength. And number two, an anemic view of the greatness and the glory of God. When I encounter crisis and I look to me, that says I have a too high a view of myself and too low a view of God. That's what this text calls us to correct this morning. That when we are in crisis, we need to be reminded I, like Daniel, have no ability to get myself out of this. There's nothing that I can do, that I can scheme, that I can finagle to deliver myself, but I'm dependent on a God who has revealed his love to me, who's revealed his grace to me, seeking mercy from him. So when we're in crisis, we need to come before him. We need to pray. But how do you pray when you pray? I'm not asking about your formula. I'm not asking about what words you use. Um, but I'm asking what your words and posture in your prayers say about what you believe in your heart. Let me illustrate. Those of you who are parents or who have ever babysat children or anything like that, um, have you ever had the experience of you're fixing dinner or you're fixing a snack for kids and they arrive at the table uh, and you hear the call from the table as you're you know, frantically trying to put everything together? Hey, where's my drink? And you think, come on, kid, like, what's up with that? Like, and, and you're not bothered that your kid would want something to drink. You're probably pouring them a drink right at that moment. You're not a monster who's trying to withhold a drink from your kid. What, what irritates you about that is the sense of entitlement and presumption that like, hey, where are you at, mom and dad? Speed it up. I'm hungry and thirsty and need something for you. Where's my drink at? So what do you tell your kid? You say, hey, how about can I have some juice, please? Like, that's a better way to ask for your drink. When you approach God in prayer, does it sound more like, please, can I have some juice? Or, hey, where's my drink? 
Where are you at, God? You going to show up sometime? Are we entreating him with a heart that is contrite, that is seeking grace, or do we have that sense of entitlement? When God does something for us, when we're in need, when he delivers us, are we thankful to him like a person? Or is God just kind of like a good luck charm that does cool stuff for us now and then, where we don't have to stop and think about who he is, about his character? When you're in need, when you're afraid, when you're anxious, when you're threatened, if you have a big and glorious view of God, then you will entreat him for undeserved mercy on the basis of his steadfast love. That's Daniel's example for us this morning, and that's where we want to get to. So examine our attitudes, examine our hearts. How do we view God? How do we view ourselves? And how do we approach him when we are in need of grace? But because of what we know about his steadfast love, and especially what we know of him through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, we can come before him in humility, yes, but with a sort of bold humility that sounds anachronistic at first, but those two things go together in Christ. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. The author of the Hebrews says, our high priest, Jesus, is not removed from us. He's not distant, but he's been tempted like we have. He's walked this earth like we do. And so we can come before him with boldness, knowing he understands our needs and waits with expectancy to give us grace, to intercede on our behalf. Do we approach him with our knowledge of his character? Daniel approached knowing of God as a merciful God, as a good father. We know that even better than Daniel does. Daniel didn't know about Jesus. Daniel didn't know about a cross where God died in order to redeem us from our sins. He was looking through shadow, through cloudy mirror. We see clearly the compassion of God on display in Christ. Do you entreat him on the basis of that character? And then when others around you are confronted with perplexing mysteries, like Nebuchadnezzar is here, do you know where to turn to give them what they need? See, this, this text at first glance seems very foreign, right? Like We don't know people who are having dreams and are really struggling with knowing what they mean, and, and we're not foot faced with having to interpret somebody's dream. I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe one of you has interpreted a dream for somebody this week. If you have, fantastic, and just ignore what I'm saying. But that's not me. That's not my life. And so I look at a story like this, and I think, what, what am I going to do with this? Well, it was really helpful reading a commentary uh, this week and hearing this piece of text from Ian Duggan, uh, who writes about what's going on here and says, this is really not as far from our lives as we might think. Here's, here's what he says. He says, people around us may not be having the same dreams as Nebuchadnezzar, but they're nonetheless regularly faced with questions they cannot answer. They wonder, why am I here? What happens to me when I die? How should I live in this world? These are profound questions that keep intruding themselves into our lives, especially in times of trial. And they are questions for which the wisdom of the world is always insufficient. Only the wisdom of the world's creator, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, will suffice. Shall we not share this wisdom with our puzzled neighbors? There are people all around us. They may be sitting in silence, but they're asking these questions. They're in need of wisdom from God. All of us are dependent on God's glory for our hope, for our future, for our forgiveness. Are we attentive to what's going on around us and to entreating God for grace, not only for our needs, but for the needs of those whom we walk with every day in our neighborhood 
at our jobs and our schools. Daniel and his friends understood that they were fully dependent on God to deliver them from this crisis. And so they entreat him for mercy. And God provides. Verse 19, we see deliverance by God's glory. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. When Daniel asks for mercy, deliverance comes. We serve a God who loves to deliver his people, who loves to show mercy and grace when we come before him. Jesus talked about how, you know, if those of you who are parents, which of you, if your kid asks for a piece of bread, are going to give him a rock? No. Which of you, uh, if a kid asks for a fish, is going to give him a snake? No, that's not what you do. And Jesus says, if you who are evil sinners know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God delight to give good things to his? Daniel seeks mercy, and God delivers. And in this simple sentence, we see this great and glorious truth of God being ready and willing and loving to deliver, but we also see something else that I want us to kind of hone in. I want you to notice exactly how God goes about deliverance. Even the means of deliverance that he gives is such that it highlights his own work, his own power, his own glory. What I mean is this. Let's think about Daniel. Daniel, as we're going to see, we've seen a little bit, we're going to see even more throughout the book. He's a pretty smart guy. Like That's one of the reasons he has excelled in the kingdom to this point. We're told that they, he mastered his studies uh, as he was put through this three-year schooling program to be able to serve the king. He exceeded everybody else. He was smart. He already has a bit of a rapport with the king to some degree. We're going to see in the way that they interact here momentarily. Daniel is a smart guy. He is a high achiever, and he's really notable in the way that he deals with others and the way he rises to prominence within the kingdom. And smart guys can come up with some pretty cool and crafty and clever schemes. Like You get, you give a, you get a smart guy on your team, and they can put together a fantastic plan that I never even thought of that, but here this guy always seems to have the right answer, the right plan. But I want you to notice the way that this mystery was revealed to him. It's revealed in a vision in the night. Now, Daniel's pretty crafty. He's pretty smart. But have you ever, have you ever tried to make yourself dream about something? That doesn't work so good. Like maybe you've, you've been woken up one night from a really, really great dream and you think, oh, man, I gotta know how that ends and you try to like go back to sleep and think about it and want it, to, but it doesn't come back. It's gone. Or maybe you wake up at 2 a.m. from some horrible nightmare and you're, you're shaking and you're a little nervous and you realize I've got to go back to sleep or I'm going to be a zombie at work tomorrow, but you don't want to go back into that dream again. And so you're thinking, come on, dream something else, but you fall asleep and it picks right back up. We have no ability to control what we dream. Not even a smart and crafty and clever guy like Daniel has any control in how and what he dreams. And so God gives Daniel his answers, gives him his wisdom through a vision in the night, through a way that only God can get the credit for. There is no confusion about, well, did Daniel just drum this up in his mind? No, it's from God. Daniel is delivered not by his own abilities, not by his own power, not by his own righteousness, but by God's free grace. Do you see this as true in your own life? Do you see this as true in your own salvation? That the only deliverance you have is not because you figured something out. 
Not because you were smarter than the next guy or more righteous than the next guy or nicer than the next guy, but because God gave you grace. If you understand your salvation in that way as fully achieved by God's glory and grace, then that's going to change the way you respond to it. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here in these next few verses looking at how Daniel responds to this deliverance, how he responds to this grace. If we don't believe that our salvation, that our righteousness is fully from God and not a product of our own doing, we're never going to respond like Daniel does. Daniel's deliverance is by God's glory. It was revealed to him in the vision of the night, and so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The remainder of our text this morning, verses 20 through 30, is made up of declarations of God's glory. Daniel was dependent on God's glory. He has been delivered by God's glory, and now he is going to declare God's glory in a couple of different ways. Sometimes the three points that all start with the same letter, they just work. You know, this one just kind of worked out that way. It's an official Baptist text this morning. Declarations of God's glory. Having received his answer, Daniel goes and he wakes up his friends and he says, all right, let's go before the king and save everybody. That's not what he does. Daniel receives his vision and then he blessed the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel rolls into song here. It's as if we just took a psalm, popped it out of psalms and stuck it right here in the middle of Daniel chapter 2. He pauses to declare God's glory, first of all, in the quiet, in the silence of his own house, of his own room, of his own heart, because he is overjoyed at what God has done for him. In Daniel's pause, there's a lesson for us. When God answers prayer, we're often tempted to just tick it off and go to the next item on our list. All right, God, now on to this one. But instead... The appropriate response when God answers prayer is worship, is thanksgiving. Instead of saying, like, again, parenting really is enlightening with all of this. You do something for your kid, the next day, the next day it's, hey, what about this? I just did that for you yesterday. Have you forgotten about that completely? God must feel the same way when he looks down on us many of the times. Don't jump to the next item on your list. Respond in worship the way that Daniel does here. Daniel praises God. In fact, this text, this little psalm that seems to us maybe like a diversion, like an aside, is actually the hinge on which this entire chapter swings. This is the main point of Daniel chapter 2. It's not the crisis in the kingdom. It's not even Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's the fact that this is the glorious God who is in charge of all of it. We're going to see that As we look at this circumstance, everything that is going on in the lives of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom in this dream, it is all highlighting these traits that Daniel sings about right here in this text. Think back to Dave's sermon last week. Nebuchadnezzar issues his impossible decree, and the magicians say, we can't do this, no man can do this, only the gods can do this, and they do not dwell with flesh. They're out there. We cannot access their wisdom. It's hidden from us. Next week, we're going to see that the king's dream is actually about kingdoms, his kingdom, future kingdoms to come, and the way that God will will install a kingdom and then destroy it. Install and destroy. God sets up and tears down kingdoms, and ultimately, a kingdom that is not from this world will come down, and it will shatter all other kingdoms, and it will endure forevermore. 
These two realities, that we have a God who reveals mysteries and that we have a God who is mighty over the kingdoms of this world, these are the two things that Daniel highlights in his psalm, in his hymn, in his praise to God. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but our God endures forever, and he will do whatever he pleases, right? Think of, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. This Babylonian kingdom is mighty more than any others. They've conquered his people. They've taken him away to another land. And God says, I raise up and I tear down, not the Babylonians. And I share wisdom while the the magicians of Babylon are running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to understand how can we know this truth? God gives it to Daniel, just like that, vision of the night. And he understands. Daniel praises God for these realities in the quiet of his own home. This is a spontaneous, it is a deeply personal exaltation of who God is, particularly his wisdom and his might, the two factors that are going to be at play in Daniel's life and experience right now. So verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God does whatever he pleases. I want a little little homework. You have to write this down and remember it in a couple weeks. Because once we do the rest of this chapter, once we study the dream and the interpretation uh, next week, I want you to come back and read verse 21 again after we've been through all that. It is a direct reaction by Daniel to the future that God has revealed. When we read that vision, when we see what God has laid out before King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel right here in verse 21 is saying, this is you, God, this is what you do. And then in verse 22, he gives a proclamation of the reality that has just saved his own life. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, but he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what is to come. His wise men couldn't discern it. Even their gods were powerless to figure it out. And yet Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven, reveals deep and hidden things, and nothing is impossible for him. And that has saved Daniel. It's delivered him here. And Daniel praises him. He overflows with thanksgiving. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Do you glorify God in your heart like this? Perhaps this morning you could recount amazing things that he's done for you. Maybe you only have to reach back a couple of days to see God did something wonderful. He answered a prayer. He delivered me from this situation. Maybe you're reaching back 10 years to something God has done in the past, and it still fills your mind with joy when you hear it. Are you thankful for these things? Are you thankful for him, like we said earlier, like a person, right? Thankfulness is directed at a person. When we conceive of God as a rabbit's foot, a good luck charm, we're not going to be thankful to him. When we know him as our good father, we will speak to him like Daniel does here. Does your heart overflow with thankfulness? Reminded me of, a, uh, of an encounter from the life of Jesus in Luke 17. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? 
Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Are we like the nine or are we like the one? What kind of thankfulness flows from us? When was the last time that your heart reacted to God with something remotely resembling the hymn of praise that we see from Daniel here? Now, it doesn't have to be an eloquent psalm or a poetic explanation of praise, but when was the last time that your heart was filled to bursting with thankfulness to God? That's the lesson. That's the example that we see from Daniel here. When we are delivered, and all of us have been delivered from more than we can ever imagine, are our hearts filled with thankfulness. A story is told of 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Lots of stories are told by Spurgeon. I think this one's probably true, but you never can tell. Uh, Spurgeon was sharing the gospel with a woman. He was, he was explaining to her what Christ has done, and she was very, very close to believing and following after Christ. And the story goes that, that when he was explaining the gospel to her, this woman said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord saves me, he shall never hear the end of it. Is that you? Like, do you understand the gravity of what God has done through the cross of Jesus Christ? The gravity of what we celebrate in song, in the word, in communion every single week? So how do we cultivate that? Right? How do we become better at cultivating thanksgiving? It's like, it's like a plant in a garden. You've got to tend to it. You've got to grow it. It doesn't just magically pop up. Sanctification is hard work. So how do we cultivate this kind of thankfulness? One thing I thought about this week, keep a prayer journal. Or, or if that's, you know, too pen and papery, you can use a, you know, an app or whatever it is. But keep some way of recording when God answers a prayer. When you're praying for something and God gives an answer, write it down. Have some way that you can then look back and have this record of God answered this prayer, this prayer, this prayer. So that you can see through time, what has he done? Because our minds, you know, we forget really easily. We've got day-to-day cares and concerns, and it can be very easy to just on to the next thing. Write it down, and then two months from now, go back and look at what you've written down for two months and see, wow, God's shown his faithfulness in this. And that will cultivate thankfulness. Think on it. Dwell on it. Make it a point to say, God, look at what you've done for me. One small thing that you can do this week to begin to reflect and cultivate greater thankfulness in your life. But Daniel's praise doesn't stop in the privacy of his own room, does it? When his hymn ends in verse 23, we pick up in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. God's power wasn't something that Daniel rejoiced over in secret so that he could live and thrive in a skeptical world with everybody thinking he was just a really smart guy. Like Daniel understands through the dream that he didn't come up with this, he didn't do this, but If he wanted to, he could have passed off to the king. Hey, king, guess what I figured out? I got your dream. Here's what it is. And, you know, I I studied a lot last night, and I did some some thinking and did some of the sorcery stuff, and it just happened. But he doesn't do that. Daniel is going to proclaim God's glory, not just in the quiet, but in the courts. He's going to let everyone know what it is that God has accomplished. He requests his audience before the king through Arioch in verse 24. Do not destroy the wise men. Bring me before the king. I will show the king the interpretation. And Arioch hustles Daniel into the king's presence. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and thus said to the king, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. 
this is kind of speculative, so it's, it's hard to kind of know how valuable it is, but it fascinates me when I look at this. What is Arioch's attitude here? When he goes in in haste, is this like relief? King, I found somebody. Is this like panic? Hey, King, I found somebody. Is this opportunistic pride? You notice, I have found somebody who can answer the king's dream. We don't know. It doesn't really tell us. But Ariot comes in and he says, hey, King, I found a possible answer to our crisis. This, after all, might save Ariot from a lot of really tiresome decapitation that he's going to have to do for the rest of the day. So maybe he just wants a day off. But Daniel comes in before the king. And the king seems to be somewhat skeptical of Daniel's, uh, of his ability to do what it is he says he's going to do. Now, remember I said earlier, Daniel has some rapport with Nebuchadnezzar already. We saw that last week at the end of Dave's sermon when Daniel asks through Arioch, hey, king, give me, give me the night and I will come up with the interpretation for you. The king was very skeptical of his own enchanters for trying to buy time. Yet Daniel essentially does what could be seen as buying time and the king grants his request. So there's some kind of familiarity relationship there, but not enough that Nebuchadnezzar's not skeptical. You can kind of hear that in his answer here. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? His patience is wearing thin. I would love to see Nebuchadnezzar's face when Daniel starts giving his reply. Because Daniel is not a man frightened and desperate to save his skin, just blurting it out as soon as he gets into the room. Every word he says, is carefully constructed to point Nebuchadnezzar and anyone else who is around to God, to highlight God's doing in this amazing thing. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27, nobody can do this. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. And I'm thinking at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, then why on earth are you here, kid? I've already, I've already heard this. Arioch, come on, let's get going. But no, Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven, singular. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar that his dream is about the future. That God is giving him a glimpse of things that will be. He's telling him, your your dream has meaning. It has purpose. This is not a result of some bad Babylonian pizza right before you went to bed that night. God is speaking to you. The God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who knows all things, who sets up, who tears down. He has given you a glimpse into what is to come, king. He is revealing this to you. And as for me, I am being given this simply to help you to understand. Verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel says, it's interesting when we read verse 30, this is Daniel saying, even if I had all the wisdom of all the wise men in all the world, That wouldn't be enough for me to get this. But God has revealed it. Daniel's not saying, even though I'm the smartest guy in the world, this wasn't actually me, it was God. Daniel is saying, all the wisdom on the planet is not sufficient for this. Not because of any wisdom that I have that's more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. Only the God of heaven can reveal this. He's revealed his dream to you. 
And he's revealed the meaning to me so that I can share it with you and point you to him. Point you to the one who has given this, to this one who reveals mysteries. When you're living in public as a stranger in a strange land here in the good old U.S. of A., And when people see you prosper, in whatever way, that could be material, that could be in your relationships, that could be in any number of things. When people see things going well for you, what impression do you give them about why things are going well for you? Are you content for people to think that you did really well at work last week, you aced that presentation because you're, after all, a pretty smart guy? Do you want them to know that, you know, when they come over to your house and your, your friends who aren't Christians and they marvel at the way that your kids actually seem to listen to you when you tell them to do something, like, well, that's just because we're really, really good parents. I mean, we've got it down. We did this and this and this and this. Do you, you want people to understand that you succeed because you are wise or you're smart or you're clever or whatever the case may be? Or do you proclaim the grace of God in the way that you live? When people see you prosper, do they understand without mistake that you are doing well, not because of anything in you, but because God has shown you grace. Because he's transforming you into his own image. Daniel is making absolutely sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows, I'm not the reason you're about to get an answer. God is the one who reveals mysteries. And anything good and wise and revealing that is in me is simply there because God is using me as a vehicle to share his grace with you, King. And so that kind of brings us to the big question from this text this morning. When people watch you, are they confronted with the glory of a God who is in perfect and complete control of all things and who alone can reveal what we hunger to know? Does your life make any sense if you remove God from the equation? Daniel's doesn't. If you take God away from Daniel, the choices that he makes here are ridiculous to stick out his neck before the king, to spend the night praying to God instead of trying to come up with a clever plan to get out from under this mess, to deflect praise and glory to God instead of taking advantage of this to achieve and advance his own standing in the kingdom. Everything that Daniel does only makes sense if there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who sets up, who tears down. And in that, Daniel kind of reminds me this morning of like a proto-example of 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Right in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection from the dead. They deny it. They say it's not true. And Paul says, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if it's all about this life and this life only, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then your faith is a joke and we're wasting our time. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's saying, if your life makes sense, if you remove Jesus from the equation, what are you doing? If if we're following Christ, it means we're making decisions, we're doing things, we're taking risks that we would only take if Christ were alive, if he'd been raised from the dead, if this faith is real. And so are we living that way? Is our life only made sense of by the reality that we proclaim to serve a risen Savior? that God is working in us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ? Does your life point to a reality, point to a glory that is bigger than this life? That's what this chapter is about. That among all the circumstances 
that befuddled the most powerful man on the planet at that point in time, that confused him, that threw his subjects and his realm into chaos, not knowing if they were going to live or die. In the midst of all of that, there was a God in heaven who was in control of everything, who is more glorious than Daniel, who is more glorious than Nebuchadnezzar, who sets up, who tears down, who reveals the mysteries, who dwells among flesh. To the Babylonians, the gods were inaccessible. They were out there. David said, I serve a God who speaks, and he has spoken to you, Nebuchadnezzar, and he speaks to me. He reveals himself to men. And if our hearts aren't then drawn to see our God dwells among flesh, in Daniel's case, he does it through this revelation of himself, but he came literally and dwelled among flesh. He walked this earth as one of us. He became, through the virgin's womb, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he made his dwelling with us. We have a great high priest who is not out there, who is not cut off, who is not in the heavens and knows nothing of what we go through, but he's been tempted in every way as we are. Yet he was without sin, and he took our sin upon himself. He died, he rose from the grave in order to give us grace that we don't deserve, that we can never achieve, that we can never merit. We see all of these little hints and shadows that are at play in this text, all these truths that are bubbling just beneath the surface. In Christ, they rise to the top. They are shown clearly and in glory. We see Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the revelation of God. Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He reveals what is hidden. Christ is the one who will rule and reign forever and ever. He is the rock, as we're going to see next week, that will fall on the statue, that will crush it to bits, and that will endure forever, a new kingdom that cannot be shaken, that will be forevermore to the glory of God the Father. Will we live in response to this greater revealed truth that we have in the same way that Daniel trusted God moment by moment with the truth that God had revealed to him? Will we live lives that make it unmistakable that there is a bigger, more glorious reality at play than just me? So as we go from here today, as we think about these things, if you're following Christ, ask yourself that question. Does your life point to a reality and a glory that is bigger than you, that is bigger than this world? When people watch you, are they confronted with the glory of a God who is perfect, who is in complete control of all things, and who alone can reveal what we hunger to know, who can answer those questions that keep us up at night? Do you act as an instrument to point people to God, like Daniel does here? Not because you're smart, not because you're crafty, not because you're cool, not because you're righteous, but because you serve the God who can answer the longings, the yearnings of your heart, and of all the people that you come in contact with this week. And if you don't know God, the invitation is to know this God. Right? That's the invitation that David gives, or that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar here is King, God is speaking to you. He has given you this dream, this glimpse into the future, not to be a cool talking point at your next dinner party, but because he's trying to get your attention. We're going to see with Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't have his attention gotten very easily. But this is why God is speaking to him. He's revealing himself to you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't know this God, God is speaking to you through this word, through his word, through his people. And he is saying, I have something to say to you. There is a, there is a consternation in your heart that nothing in this world will be able to solve. But I reveal what is hidden. 
and I am able to deliver perfectly. God has shown himself to us through his word, through his son, Jesus Christ, and transformed us. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings, to rejoice at this God who has saved us and who is continuing to work in us to make us look more and more like Christ, less and less like our old selves. If you don't know that God, then allow us to reveal him to you this morning through his word, through the songs that we sing, through our gathering together. We would love to start to talk about what does it mean to know this God? What does it mean to follow this God? Why did Christ have to come and die and rise from the dead? Do we really believe that happened? Really? We do. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to answer your questions, to hear your doubts, your concerns. But this morning, as we continue in worship, may it echo through our hearts and through our minds. May our theme song today and tomorrow and Tuesday and the rest of our lives be not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name give glory. What can you do this week to embody Psalm 115 like Daniel does before the king? I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun to find out. You never know what opportunity he will place before you. So let's pray, let's seek his help, his grace, his strength, and let's glorify him in all we say and do this week. Pray with me. Father, that is the desire of our heart this morning, that we would give glory to you and not to ourselves, that we would proclaim your matchless grace with every word that we speak, with every action that we take, with our very thoughts in the quiet of our own rooms. May we rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us. May you fill our hearts to bursting with thankfulness at the grace that you have shown. God, we all know so many people who so desperately need to know you, who need to know a God who speaks and reveals what is hidden and answers the questions of our hearts. God, may you help us to communicate in our words and our actions and all things that we know you, that we have been changed and transformed by you. May we hold out grace. May we hold out a picture of Christ. And Father, for those who are here this morning, who listen to these words and think, I don't, I don't know that God. I identify more with the king than I do with Daniel. I'm confused. Father, may they know you through your word, through your spirit. May you reveal what is hidden. May you calm their anxious hearts. May you show them Christ. And God, may they seek people who are reflecting your glory in their living and ask ask questions ask for answers and may we be ready to give them not because we have any more wisdom than all the living but because there is a God in heaven who speaks and who has made known mysteries to us by his grace and through his word help us father this week to bring glory to your in the name of Christ and for his sake that we ask these things. Amen.